Chapter 5 of A Theory of Monads, Outlines of the Philosophy of the Principle of Relativity. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Blethering Ape. A Theory of Monads, Outlines of the Philosophy of the Principle of Relativity by Herbert Wilden Carr. Chapter 5 The Idea of God. Minds are images of the deity, capable of knowing the system of the universe, and to some extent of imitating it, each mind being like a small divinity in its own sphere. The totality of all minds is the city of God, a moral world in the natural world, the most exalted and most divine among the works of God, Leibniz. Individual things cannot exist or be conceived without God, and yet God does not appertain to their essence, Spinoza. We, who are many, are one body in Christ, and severally members one of another. St. Paul When we contemplate the unlimited perspective, radiating in every direction from our standpoint of space and time existence, and consider the infinitesimal range of our action, and the brief moment during which the infinite duration converging on our finite individuality is actualized in it, the possibility of giving forms to the conception of God, that is, the conception of an infinite individuality comprehending what we only apprehend, appears presumptuous and extravagant in the highest degree. It seems as though the concept can only be a fantastic one, and that to be reverent towards it when we have formed it is the sign of a superstitious and craven spirit. Yet the conception of God is one which the human mind is driven to form by a need inherent in its nature, a necessity appertaining to its essence. Upon its logical consistency depends success in the effort to comprehend the reality of which we form part. To the philosophers of the 17th century, God is the beginning and end of philosophical speculation. It was one of the striking features of the rise of modern philosophy that whatever the subject matter, the idea of God was the dominant motive. The form in which the problem of the nature of God was debated gives to the arguments of that period a certain remoteness from our actual interests today. At times, too, the acrimony of the disputes recalls the bitterness and repeats the ineptitudes of the theological controversies of the fourth century. Yet, it is not difficult to see that the problem of divine nature which exercised Spinoza and Leibniz is identical with our problem today, and nothing but the mode of expression is changed. The ethics of Spinoza begins with the science of God. Ethics is not, for Spinoza, a department of philosophy. It is philosophy. And beginning with the science of God is not choosing an arbitrary starting point from which to explore knowledge and reality, nor laying down a mystical doctrine as a foundation of a system. It is the deliberate adoption of a method which he defends as the necessary and characteristic method of philosophy. We must begin with a comprehensive grasp of the whole if we would understand anything as a part for the nature of the part is derived from its relation to the whole. The whole is imminent in every part. The denial of this would be the negation of system and would destroy at the outset the possibility of science of any kind and not only of philosophy. The cause of the failure of so many philosophers who have striven for a consistent theory is, he tells us, in their not having observed the order of philosophical argument. 
for divine nature, which they thought to have considered before all things, for that it is prior in knowledge and nature, that they have thought to be last in the order of knowledge, and things which are called the objects of the senses, they have believed to be prior to all things. Ethics, Part 2, 10. What then is the essential conception of God? It is a conception we must form because it is a necessity of human thought. To understand it, we must set aside any consideration of what we are accustomed to call the attributes of God. We want to know the essence of God. This essence is, in the terms of the ontological argument, a being absolutely infinite and perfect in all things. What positive meaning can we assign to these terms, infinite and perfect? The whole value of the philosophical conception depends on the answer to this question. The reality we know directly in experience is finite and incomplete. It is finite because our activity is circumscribed. It is incomplete because our perspective is limited. The horizon which bounds our outlook in space and time does not circumscribe our universe. We are accustomed on this account to think of our individuality as finite and of our universe as infinite. Yet God cannot be infinite in this meaning of the term, for this would be incompatible with perfection. Space and time are infinite in the precise sense in which an arithmetical series is infinite. They have no last term. The argument, therefore, for the divine being must proceed differently. It cannot be based on the limitations of our knowledge, for then we should only be hypostatizing the unknowable. And it cannot be based on any supposed necessity of reconciling the antimonies in our concepts of space and time, for success would destroy the character of our perspective. The argument must be based on the concept of individuality itself. The finitude of our individuality is the direct perception of a greater individuality within which our individuality is included. Individuality is in the very concept of it infinite and perfect. Finitude, that is to say, is an imperfection of individuality, and insofar as we perceive ourselves to be finite, we perceive ourselves to fall short of individuality. And insofar as we perceive individuality to be reality, we know God. The philosophical conception of God is therefore the idea of infinite individuality, and this is not an arbitrary idea dependent on the play of fancy or on creative imagination. It is not the idea of a person conceived as an object within our perspective, perceiving what we perceived, understanding and sharing the motives which prompt our actions, a person like ourselves but transcending our limitations and of an infinitely exalted character. No success in imagining an agent within our perspective, acting on the plane of our activity, though unlimited by its range, however inspiring and comforting the contemplation, however solid and assuring the ground, however unwavering the faith in its real existence, will give us philosophical satisfaction or advance us one iota towards the conception of God which philosophy requires. The philosophical conception of God lies on a higher plane, and it is on a lower plane that ordinary religious experience moves. This is why religious arguments conceal rather than reveal the necessity of thought which leads us to affirm the existence of God. When we turn to religion for hope and consolation in the presence of the great mystery of death, when we seek support in trial, when we are shocked at the idea of injustice and, conscious of rectitude, find our motives misunderstood, our affections unrequited, 
we may seem to be obeying an instinct of our nature when we put our trust in God. But the God in whom we trust is an idol of our imagination. We construct it and then lean on it for support. But even could we endow it with real existence or discern it in independent activity, it would be as far away as ever from the satisfaction which philosophy needs. On the other hand, the philosophical conception of God is not an attempt to conceive the unconditioned, to conceive an existence transcending space and time, causality, and every category by which our experience is coordinated, or to conceive of a being who stands to be the whole realm of experience as its ground and source and origin. This has been the main line which the arguments for the existence of God have followed. These arguments have appealed forcibly to theologians because they have seemed to be based on a self-evident principle of reason, and so to establish theology on a firm foundation. The attempt has always proved illusory, for there exists no way in which the unconditioned can take shape in a positive conception which does not involve us in the very antimonies from which it was designed to deliver us. The true concept of God, which alone will give satisfaction to philosophy, must present him not transcendent but imminent in the world. We have only the true idea of God if we see that the world is as necessary to God as God is to the world. This is so important that it is worthwhile to illustrate it with some care. There are three famous proofs of the existence of God. They are named the ontological, cosmological, and the teleological. It was Kant who summed them up under these three heads. There are many forms of demonstration, but they can all be arranged under one or the other of these three, and the emphasis laid on one or other of them not infrequently serves to characterize a philosophy and mark its range and standpoint. In scholasticism, they fall into two groups representing antithetical doctrines of the nature of universals, which go back to Plato and Aristotle. It is the antithesis between those who explain experience by the concept and those who construct the concept from experience. In medieval philosophy, those who belonged to one group were named realists. They represented the Platonic tradition and include St. Augustine, St. Anselm, who has given his name to the ontological argument, and St. Bonaventura. The other group was that of the nominalists, who were followers of Aristotle, and their system culminated in the great work of St. Thomas Aquinas. To the realists, the ontological proof was in effect the whole basis of philosophy, whereas the nominalists rejected it altogether. The ontological argument deduces the existence of God from the idea of God. Its syllogism is not a process of thought. It is a didactive elucidation limited to explaining the premise. There is an idea of something greater than which nothing can be thought to be. This idea must include existence. To the ordinary mind, it sounds like a logistic puzzle. As dialectic, it may be unanswerable, but like all pure dialectic, it fails to carry conviction. The syllogism runs thus. God is the idea of an absolutely perfect being. Perfection includes existence, for what lacks existence falls short of perfection. We have the idea of this perfect being, therefore God exists. The fool may say in his heart, there is no God, but in so saying, he only proves that he is a fool. He is self-stultified. He prides himself on putting into words what is unthinkable. Before attempting to estimate the philosophical value of the ontological argument, 
it is well to place the other arguments beside it in order to bring out the contrast. To St. Thomas Aquinas, the ontological proof appeared to reduce itself to the bare judgment of identity. If there is a God, then he cannot not be. It does not touch the case of one who really denied that there is a God. But then God was not for St. Thomas an innate cognition. The only innate cognitions he recognized were logical principles, the law of contradiction, and the like. He was confident of the power of thought itself, without innate truth, without any presupposition, simply by the logical elaboration of natural cognition, to attain reality and know God. His proofs, consequently, five in number, are none of them a priori, but all proceed from and depend on direct experience itself. Three of the five proofs are forms of what Kant afterwards called the cosmological proof. The other two are forms of the teleological proof. They can be summed up very briefly. The first is taken direct from Aristotle. Movement, therefore, supposes a mover. The series of movements and movers cannot be infinite. Therefore, there must be a prime mover, and this is God. The second proof is the same form of argument applied to the series of causes and effects. There must be a first cause, and this is God. The third is the argument from the contingent to the necessary. A first cause cannot be contingent. It must have its being from itself alone and be necessary. This necessary being is God. The fourth is the argument from effect to cause, where the effect is the logical condition of the cause, and therefore itself the final cause. The world is the final cause on account of which the first cause is efficient. The effect, that is to say, and not the cause, is the logical beginning. The full explanation only appears in the fifth proof, which is the argument from the evidence of design in nature. This last and best known of all the arguments really gathers the others into itself. Design in nature is evidence of the existence of an intelligent being. This being or mind is God. The cosmological and teleological arguments are closely associated and taken together represent a principle which is directly antithetical to that of the ontological argument. So that instead of three arguments of cumulative force, we have two directly antithetical principles which make a completely different appeal. And in fact, the acceptance of the one generally carries with it the rejection of the other. The ontological argument appeals to the intuition of existence, and its dynamic character is not the syllogistic form in which it affirms a necessary relation between existence and essence, considered as distinct and opposite concepts, but in the intuition that essence includes existence. This is not self-evident. On the other hand, it is directly contrary to what appears self-evident. Existence appears to us the all-inclusive term, within which any essence may either be or not be, but which itself cannot be included within any essence. When, then, we conceive God, what we conceive is essence, and it seems to us that God, like every other ideal content of thought, may or may not exist. The ontological argument shows that in conceiving God, we are conceiving infinite essence, which means that we conceive an individuality without the limitations which attach to our individuality, these limitations consisting precisely in the fact that they fall within a more inclusive concept, existence. 
God is finite like ourselves if he is included within a wider concept, existence, from which he might be excluded. Either, therefore, we have no theoretical knowledge of God, and this was Kant's view, or else we have the concept of an essence which includes existence. There is, however, in regard to the ontological argument, a more important consideration than that which concerns its logical power to carry conviction, the question namely whether the truth which it purports to establish is of any value in itself. Is the argument anything more than a piece of dexterous logomachy? Is it other than an exercise in logistic, a circular argument playing around abstract terms devoid of real significance? Those who reject the argument undoubtedly do so because they so regard it. It is impossible to declare it false, but it can be urged that it is a mere tautology, repeating in the conclusion what it has imported into the premise. Only, it will be said, if in the concept of an infinite and perfect being you include existence, you can conclude from the concept that God exists. Those, on the other hand, who accept it attach absolutely no value to its syllogistic form, but only to its ground in the intuition. It directs the mind to a truth about thought and reality which, so far from being obvious, trivial, or unimportant, is not only directly contrary to common sense and scientific realism, but the very condition of philosophic insight. The cosmological and teleological arguments appeal to a totally different and antithetical principle. They appeal not to an intuition expressed in the content of a concept, but to the principle of causality, which is the basis of ordinary and scientific explanation. The cosmological argument rests on the principle of efficient causation, which is the postulate of physical science. The teleological on the principle of final causation or design, which is the postulate of biological and mental science. The weakness of the first is that the conditions of the premise exclude the possibility of the conclusion. How can the fact of experience that every cause of an effect is itself the effect of a cause support the conclusion that there is a cause which is not an effect of a cause but a causa sui? The conclusion affirms a fact which contradicts the fact on which the premise is founded. The teleological argument is also weak in an equally essential particular. If there be evidence of design, there is equal evidence of unachieved purpose and imperfection. How from an imperfect and incomplete and shortcoming creation can we argue to the existence of perfect intelligence and power? The two currents of thought ran together in close association throughout the scholastic period. They represented two fundamentally different and opposite concepts of God and reality. The ontological argument was not a logical demonstration. Those who held it had no need of a logical demonstration. They gave it logical form to satisfy the current demand for proofs. The evidence was immediate and intuitive. True cognition, in their view, was innate and not derived from experience. God and reality were intellectual and imminent, not transcendent. For the other view, true cognition was a construction of elements furnished by sensible perceptions. With the rise of modern philosophy, the ontological argument acquired a new significance. It was adopted by Descartes and made by Spinoza the pivot of a complete system of mathematically deduced philosophical propositions. It was rejected by Kant, and his refutation is not only one of the most important doctrines in the critique of pure reason, 
and a notable event in the history of modern philosophy, but it forms a kind of signpost pointing two divergent directions in constructive philosophy. Hegel reinstated the argument. It lives today in the theory of the absolute of F.H. Bradley, in the arguments so forcibly expounded by Bergson in Evolution Creatrice that the idea of nothing is a pseudo-idea, and it is adopted by Croce in his theory of the concrete universality of mind. On the other hand, it is generally rejected or discarded or despised by all philosophies which rest on empirical as distinct from intuitive principles and by all who are realists in the modern epistemological meaning. It has come, therefore, to be regarded as identical with one of two divergent philosophical methods. It is cherished by those who follow the a priori route, rejected by those who recognize only the a posteriori. It is not difficult to understand the greater attraction to the ordinary mind of the cosmological and teleological arguments when compared with the ontological. The latter appeals to a cold logical formula impossible to clothe with a warm flesh and blood existence our nature craves for. The other arguments, however remote they may be from practical interest, do at least appeal to the imagination and easily lend themselves to artistic representation. We can take interest in a god, clothed though he be with infinite attributes, whose throne an archangel can dispute whereas a god whose essence invokes existence evokes no emotion and leaves us aesthetically and ethically cold. Rebellion against this god is absurd. Even Satan cannot for one moment deceive himself with prospect of success. For the only thing of which he could deprive god would be the existence on which he, Satan, himself depends. The yearning of the human heart is for a God of whom we can make a graven image, who can manifest himself to us by some expression which we can cherish as a personal token, just as we cherish the picture or keepsake of a lost or absent friend. The ontological argument gives us a God whose existence does not call for faith, because it admits of no doubt, whom we cannot represent because he is ever-present, whom we cannot long for because he is never distant or absent or separated from us. Is there any value in an idea which not only leaves unsatisfied our whole aesthetic nature, but seems to condemn it as a positive defect? If this is the aesthetic difficulty, a far greater difficulty awaits us when we consider the ethical consequence. The conception of God which the ontological argument establishes negates the idea of freedom and imposes a rigid determinism which in ethics inevitably leads to some form of fatalism. A striking illustration of this is afforded in the form which Christian theology assumes in the doctrine of Calvinism. Calvinism is simply the acceptance of the ontological argument with its full logical and ethical consequences, combined with a Christian belief in an historical revelation and in an inspired authoritative exposition of the scheme of salvation in the scriptures. It is the God of Spinoza with the Pauline interpretation of Hebrew history. The stumbling block has always been its ethical consequences. On what rational ground can you appeal to a man to act righteously, to eschew evil and follow good, save only on the presumption that he is a free agent? Yet in the whole Calvinist scheme, there is nowhere left even the bare possibility of a free act. The conception of God blocks the possibility of human freedom and reduces the consciousness of it to an illusion due to limited perspective. 
we get the curious practical dilemma, the one horn of which is that God exhorts us to holiness, the other that holiness is entirely dependent on the grace of God. Human conduct can only be judged good or bad to the extent to which man is a responsible being. Yet all responsibility rests ultimately and entirely in God. It is no exaggeration to say that this problem has not only exercised the human intellect throughout the whole history of philosophy, but it has been the main theme underlying the modern development. In the 17th century, it took a pronounced theological form consequent on the Reformation of the 16th century and the revival of Luther of the Pauline doctrine of justification by faith. The cleavage in theology was not confined to the Reformed religion. It appeared in the Catholic Church as well. It produced the Puritans in the one, the Jansenists in the other. In philosophy today, the theological interest has been superseded by the secular interest, but it is our problem still. It is, however, only when we take account of the absorbing nature of the theological interest in the 17th century that we can understand the overwhelming importance which the philosophers of that period attributed to the conception of God. It is difficult for us today to realize the torture which the religious mind has suffered in its attempt to reconcile the ethical dilemma. It finds expression in the Pauline writings, but it is suppressed, deliberately thrust aside as an impiety overridden by the intense missionary zeal of the new faith. Who art thou, O man, that repliest against God? In the fierce controversy which marked the revival of Paulinism in the 16th century, it found full expression. It divided Christianity into hostile camps, one which exalted the conception of God and fearlessly accepted its logical consequences, leaving ethics to take care of itself. The other, not disputing the conception of God, but undismayed by logic in its ardor for the gospel of redemption. It is not a little curious to study the way in which Calvinism found a practical solution of the ethical dilemma of its doctrine of the grace of God. Theoretically, the Calvinist scheme rested on the doctrine of the absolute sovereignty of God and shrank from no consequence in its deductions. It was open to all the denunciations of impiety, which critics and opponents freely outpoured on it. It might acclaim the holiness of God, but no argument could save it from the charge that made God himself responsible for the sin which was hateful to him. The creation, with all the consequences of Adam's fall, was not only foreknown, but foreordained, eternally decreed. Nothing whatever was contingent. The redeemed were elected, the damned were reprobated. There was no place for repentance. God had created hell and preordained its inhabitants, and all for his own glory. To the horrified opponents of the doctrine, it seemed no blasphemy to declare this God a devil. Yet Calvinism produced saints and heroes and martyrs. It satisfied the unselfish religious emotions of many generations. It is doubtful if there has ever been an actually genuine instance of a Calvinist indulging in sin that grace may abound. What saved their diabolical concept from disastrous consequences in practice? It was saved by its doctrine of grace. In the first place, it exalted human nature. It turned faith into a means of grace instead of make it, as its opponents did, an arbitrary condition of salvation, thus raising the doctrine of justification by faith into a rational system. 
but above all in making faith a rule of life and in finding in righteousness the one sure sign of election. It is made a priori impossible to use assurance of election as a motive for sin. The holy life, a holiness which no feigning could turn to self-deception, for it consisted not in outward observance, but in purity and cleanliness in inmost thought and sentiment, was the one and only sign of election. An illustration of the way the conception of God not only formed the main problem, but limited the horizon of the philosophers of the 17th century, is afforded us in the correspondence between Leibniz and Arnaud. Leibniz had summarized the principles of his metaphysical theory, not for general publication, but for submission to authoritative opinion. He secured means to have his summary brought to the nose of the recognized leading theologian of the Catholic Church, Dr. Arnaud, world famous for his wide erudition and joint authorship of the Port Royal Logic and theological head of the Sorbonne. The reason appears to have been that Leibniz was earnestly endeavoring to reconcile the Protestant and Catholic doctrines, with the object of making reunion possible, careful, therefore, himself, not to be committed to either side. Arnaud received the summary entitled Discourse on Metaphysics, and at once singled out the characteristic doctrines of Leibniz, the principle of individuality, and shows that it makes creation as taught in the theology of Christianity inconceivable and the whole scheme of redemption unmeaning. The individual concept of every person, Leibniz had written, involves once and for all everything which can ever happen to him. In it can be seen a priori, the evidences or the reasons for the reality of each event and why one happened sooner than the other. If this is so, Arnaud wrote in reply, God was free to create or not to create Adam. But supposing he decided to create him, all that has happened to the human race, or which will ever happen to it, has occurred and will occur by a necessity more than fatal. For the individual concept of Adam involved that he would have so many children, and the individual concept of these children involved all that they would do and all the children they would have, and so on. God has therefore no more liberty in regard to all that, provided he wished to create Adam, that he was free to create a nature incapable of thought, supposing he wished to create me. In the correspondence which followed, Leibniz explained his meaning and defended himself from the charge that his principle involved a limitation of the freedom of God. What interests us, however, is the difference in the conception of God and his relation to the world in the act of creation. If the world be a monadistic reality, then in creating it, God gave existence to the monads foreknowing their nature because the concept of them was in his mind. If, on the other hand, the world be a monistic reality and there are no monads, the act of creation is the bringing of existence of a matter or stuff which God will then mold or shape as he will, and every attribute of reality will be directly brought about by his act. The conception of God is thus seen to depend on two opposite concepts of the nature of reality. And conversely, these opposite concepts of reality lead to opposite conceptions of God. I will state the two positions in my own words. Arnaud evidently held the common opinion that what exists is an inert stuff or matter created by God and fashioned or shaped by him to fulfill his purposes like clay in the hands of the potter. Whatever excellence created things possess, they receive it directly from their creator. 
This was the theory of creation, and it had to be reconciled with two significant historical events, the fall of Adam and its consequences, and the death of Christ, which furnished the means of salvation. Leibniz, on the other hand, held that the act of creation was the bringing into existence of active subjects of experience. Each subject is, in principle, an individual possessing his own perspective and responsible for his own actions. These individuals were present to the mind of God as concepts when he chose to create them. Creation was the act which gave them existence. Their activities and consequent actions, and therefore the events which followed them, were present to the mind of God in the concepts. But God did not create the concepts. He chose among concepts, which were possibilities, those to which he would give existence. To appreciate the thought of the philosophers of the 17th century, we have to bear in mind that in one particular, there was a striking contrast between their worldview and ours today. The Copernican revolution of the 16th century and the new conception of heliocentric instead of a geocentric universe with all that it involved and brought to them another worldview than that of the scholastic and medieval philosophy. The perspective of the universe had received an infinite extension in space, but no corresponding change had been brought about in the perspective of time. As far as space was concerned, the concept of an indefinite extension with no privileged center offered the same problem to them as it does to us today. But no revolution had occurred to effect a corresponding change in regard to time. This did not occur until the latter half of the 19th century, and the Darwinian revolution which affected it is within living memory. It has given to our outlook on time the same infinity of range as there is in our outlook on space. This makes it especially difficult for us to enter into the problems of the 17th century as they took form in their worldview. Practically every one of account in their intellectual world not only found it easy to accept, but had no ground for doubting. The general opinion that the world had come into existence as an event in what seems to us the quite incredibly recent past, and was destined to go out of existence as a more or less dramatic event in what seems to us an absurdly inadequate concept of the future. We have therefore to keep this limitation in view if we would appreciate the form which the problem assumed and use it to throw light on our problems today. Both Leibniz and Arnaud, for example, were agreed that human experience must have come definitely into existence as an event which they denominated creation and attributed to the act of God, antecedent to which act was the purpose conceived in the mind of God. In common with the generally accepted and undisputed opinion, they believed this event could be dated, though many with Newton questioned the chronology of the Old Testament. Both sought from their knowledge of the nature of a world they held to have been created to determine the nature of the antecedent act of creation. The special merit of Leibniz is that he grasps the principle of individuality with a clearness which has never been surpassed and which is without equal in the service it has rendered to philosophy. He saw that to create an individual is not to bring to existence an inert stuff and shape it to move in certain ways or to endow it with definite powers of response to external influence, for in the concept of the individual is already involved its perspective and its activity. 
Leibniz thought, indeed, that the monads might be created or annihilated, and he conceived God as having before him the concepts of all possible worlds and choosing from them the best, a notion mercilessly satirized in Voltaire's Candide. If we, with our time perspective, accept Leibniz's principle of individuality, we must reject his notion of creation, for it is plain to us that the concept of an individual not only involves a sequence of the events which will follow, but the infinite series of events of which it is the consequence that, in fact, an individual holds in his present activity an accumulated past as well as an unrealized future. We must therefore conceive God differently. We must conceive him not as transcendent, but as imminent, not as a super-individual creating or annihilating finite individuals as he chooses, but as an infinite individual, the complement of finite individuality. This brings to us the modern problem. I have already referred to the two different theories held by philosophers today as to the nature of finite individuality, the substantive and the adjectable theories. The substantive theory is monadistic, but conceives the monads in one essential respect differently from the way in which Leibniz conceived them. The individual is held to be exclusive and to exist in his own right, but his range of activity is limited not by his inner nature and perspective, as Leibniz conceived, but by other individuals substantially distinct, to whom his relation is external and with whom he acts and interacts. Individuals in this view are objectively and not only subjectively distinct, they are actually separate from one another. The adjectival view is that the individual is wholly constituted by its relations to and inclusion in the universal absolute experience. Individuality in this view consists in the fact that the absolute or infinite individual appears or expresses itself in finite centers of activity. Finite individuality is therefore a mode of the expression of a reality which is one and universal. These two opposite views may seem to repeat with hardly noticeable difference the theories of Leibniz and Spinoza, but the line of demarcation is different. The theory of the absolute, when fully expounded, though apparently a monistic theory, yet in its concept of substance as subjective activity and not as an inert substratum, and in its insistence on inclusiveness, resembles Leibniz's concept of the monad rather than Spinoza's concept of God, whereas the pluralistic theory with its interacting individuals requires for its background the notion of substance as inert extension. In ordinary experience, our conceptions are formed by purely practical considerations, and individuality is no exception. The urgency and primal necessity of preserving at every moment and from moment to moment the form of our activity, the convergence of our whole being on present progressing action, the continual dispersion and restoration of our store of necessary energy, the disturbance from moment to moment of our equilibrium and its continued maintenance, impose upon us an attitude of forward-looking attention which makes our immediate environment and the first form of our apprehension of things the type of reality to which the hidden aspect must of necessity conform. We are as unconscious of the strain and burden of this attention to life as we are unconscious of the weight of the atmosphere, of the attraction and repulsion of the earth's centripetal and centrifugal forces due to its movement. 
At every moment and from moment to moment, the living organism is called on to act. And if the response fail, life fails, for life consists in unceasing adaptation. Yet we pass our lives in ignorance of it. It is the body which by its structure seems to give us the power to act, yet the activity required to maintain the structure, we are wholly unconscious. Individuals appear to us as primarily and essentially a plurality. Plurality seems to depend on definite structure, and structure is wholly dependent on the spatial concept. Even a structure which is not spatial, such as a symphony or poem, can only be conceived by the aid of a spatial scheme. Our direct and immediate relations with other individuals in ordinary experience are with the bodily presence of our fellows, for only by bodily movements do we interpret their minds. Men's bodies, therefore, as definite structures rather than their minds, seem to determine the individuality. The world of action is a spatial world. Individual agents present a sameness of type in bodily structure and functions, and spatial relations come to be regarded as the basis of existence. Individuality, therefore, to ordinary thought means plurality. Plurality means repetition, the complete separation of numerically different structures identical in type. A completely different aspect of individuality is presented to us, however, when instead of regarding the body, we study the mind. The ideal structure of an individual mind is wholly constituted of its relations to other individuals. The essence of mentality is to comprehend and be comprehended. No two minds are numerically different and structurally identical in the same sense in which two bodies may be. Individual minds derive their individuality not from mutual exclusiveness, but from mutual inclusiveness. They qualify or characterize an absolute without composing or constituting it by aggregation. That is to say, no means exist of circumscribing individuality when you intend purely and only the mind. Test it in what way you will, by introspection or by observation, there is no way of detaching or dissociating or even ideally articulating the relations, personal, family, social, sensual, intellectual, emotional, aesthetical, logical, ethical, which are fused together and interpenetrate one another in an individual mind. A mind is not a thing which has these relations. It is these relations, and they are the mind. There is no scheme by which it is possible to dissect the mind in the same or in a similar way to that in which we dissect the organism. The moment we turn our attention to this contrast between the individuality presented under the spatial form of the organism and the individuality presented under the non-spatial but distinctive form of the mind, it becomes clear that we are not dealing with two individualities or with two forms of individuality, but with one individuality presenting two aspects. For the mind must have embodiment, and the body must have consciousness, not in association with one another, or as a property or quality one of another, but because the essence of function involves structure, and the essence of structure involves function. It is this perception of the necessary unity of mind and body of the impossibility of the conception of individuality, save only as mind acting through the body, and body serving mind to give the efficacy of action to its activity and the perception that what holds good of the microcosm must apply with equal force to the macrocosm, which is the basis in human thought of the idea of God.
It seems to me, moreover, that this was the driving force in the philosophy of Spinoza and Leibniz. But whether this be so or not, I maintain that it is not the cosmological or the teleological or any other logical argument from which has sprung our idea of God, but from the deep intuition of the essential unity of thought and action, mind and body, in our experience as finite individuals. If this be so, if it be the mind-body unity, and not some extraneous deduction or induction from the objective order presented to the mind and experience, which is the intuitive basis of the God's concept, the God concept will in its turn throw light on the mind-body unity. In other words, not only does the relation of mind and body in the finite individual suggest to us, by a kind of unconscious analogy, the relation of God to the universe, but it also indicates to us the direction in which we must seek the solution of the persistent and continually recurrent problem of philosophy, the interaction of mind and body. It is significant, at least, that anthropologists are generally agreed in tracing the origin of the idea to God to the animistic notions of primitive man. This, however, does not carry us far or help us much. Animism tends to emphasize the complete dissociation of mind and body, the fundamental fact in which I seem to discern the intuitive source of the innate necessity of thought which becomes a concept of God is rather the fact of the inseparability of mind and body, notwithstanding the dual aspect which our finite individuality presents. This individuality involves two antithetical principles, and as viewed from our human standpoint, the principles are not only mutually contradictory and opposed, but each seems to rest on an order of reality extending indefinitely beyond the range of the finite individual. The one, the body, secures to the individual complete exclusion. It is a principle of division and separation. It assigns us a boundary in space and time and inserts us in the vast, boundless universe of physical nature. The other, the mind, secures to the individual complete inclusion. It is a principle of comprehension. It knits us in internal relations. It brings the universe within us instead of securing our insertion in the universe. It relates to us the whole of existence and the relations are not external but constitutive of our being. While my body separates me from all the rest of the universe, cutting the universe in two, the portion without and the portion within my skin, my mind not only shows me myself in the universe, but the universe in me. It not only brings me into relation with other minds, as my body brings me into relation with other bodies, but it makes me a member of the community of minds in a quite different order of existence to that in which my body makes me one of the things in the spatial universe. In the actual mind-body of the finite individual, I have these two principles not in association, not even in an a priori synthesis, but in the absolute unity of living experience. What to my intellect cannot but appear as two distinct and antithetical orders to my living experience is indissolubly one. This is what I find finite individuality to be. It is precisely this that I believe infinite individuality to be. The idea of God arises, I believe, in the intuition of the unity of mind and body, of thought and action, of function and structure, and the activity which alone is reality. Let me try to be still more precise. In the moment of experience, mind and body are not two things but one. 
It would be impossible even to make the distinction were experience confined to the actual without outlook on the past and on the future. When we conceive universal activity in the same mode in which we conceive our individual activity, in the living intuition of the moment of experience, then we have the idea of God. And we must think universal activity as existing in this mode, because when our consciousness takes the form of reflection and attention, the moment of experience becomes for it the meeting point of two distinct orders of existence, an ideal order and a real order, the one continuous with our subjective consciousness, the other with our objective activity, and each order is determined by its past and determines its future. If, then, the unity of these two orders in the moment of experience is real, their duality in the time perspective is appearance. It is the fact, then, that our experience, though finite, is continuous with an activity that envelops it, which compels us to conceive a unity beyond finite experience. It can only be the unity of infinite individuality, because it is the incompleteness of the finite individuality which necessitates the concept. That is to say, mind and nature are separate realms in our perspective, but unity without distinction in the intuition of the actual moment of experience. If, then, we conceive their ultimate unity, we can only conceive it on the principle of the activity we know in the moment of experience. In this way, we conceive God not as transcendence, but as immanent in us. I do not mean that nature is God's body, or even that it is God's garment, to use the language of poetry, and I do not mean that behind nature we may recognize God's mind in the way that our neighbor reveals his mind by his bodily actions. To imagine God in this way is to limit God to an object in our perspective. Whereas philosophy requires that if we conceive God, we conceive him as he is in himself, in his infinite individuality. What I do mean is that we can only conceive universal activity on the same principle as we conceive our individual activity in the moment of experience. We can form no image of God, but we can and must conceive him. I will briefly recapitulate the argument. In modern philosophy, the idea of God is part of the general problem of individuality. In the 17th century, the theological concept of God was the beginning and central point of speculation. This was due to the strong human interest aroused by the religious reformation of the 16th century, and particularly to the revival of Luther of the Pauline doctrine of justification by faith. There are two divergent lines in philosophical speculation as to the nature of God and the proof of his existence. The one tendency is to regard the knowledge of God as an innate intuition of the human mind. The other is to make it depend on a reasoning process. The famous three arguments are proofs of the existence of God. The ontological, the cosmological, and the teleological are not cumulative in force, but antithetical and opposed in their direction. Those who rely on the ontological proof have no need of the other two, and these add nothing to its force. On the other hand, those who rely on demonstration usually reject the ontological proof. There are two views in modern philosophy as to the nature of the finite individual. One is the adjectical view, according to which the individual is wholly constituted of his relation to a universal experience, the absolute. His individuality consists in the fact that the absolute appears or expresses itself in temporary centers of activity. Individuality, therefore, is a mode of the expression of a universal reality. 
The other is a substantive view, according to which the individual is exclusive and exists in its own right. Its range of activity is limited by other individuals, but its relation to these is external, and it is substantially distinct. The ordinary view of individuals is that they are a plurality. There is a practical ground for this. In ordinary thought, we take men's bodies rather than their minds as the definite structure which determines their individuality. We contemplate the world as a spatial system. Men's bodies present to us a sameness of type and structure and function, and spatial relations become, in consequence, the basis of existence. Individuals appear as a many. When we attend to the mind structure, individuals seem constituted of their relations to one another. Individuals seem to derive their reality from inclusion in a greater individuality. Existence has a different meaning, therefore, according to whether we predicate it of the body or of the mind. When we say that a body exists, we mean that it adversely occupies space during some interval of time. When we say that a mind exists, we mean that it is an activity enduring through continual change. There are no spatial outlines which limit minds and prevent their interpenetration. When we make the finite individual the subject of a judgment, if the spatial body be the subject, then we have the concept of substance or thinghood. It involves the idea of present existence. A thing to be definite must be here and now. If, on the other hand, the mind be the subject, its present existence is not actuality, but potentiality. In individual activity, there is no dissociation of body and mind, of thought and action, of function and structure. Mind and body cannot even be said to be united in their activity, for the activity is a unity which precedes distinction. When we reflect on our activity from the standpoint of its process, it appears as though the moment of experience must be a unity brought about by the association in that moment of the mind and body. Yet the intuition of our reality in that moment is the intuition of original unity. My theory is that the unity is original and not an association, and that the distinctions which arise in the process of our activity are a dissociation. It is the intuition of this unity which is the basis of the necessity of thought which posits the idea of God, the idea of a higher unity, the infinite individual whose essence involves existence. End of chapter 5